0: Hi everybody, Mike Wardrock from Encounter Church here, and thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. Our prayer is that through this podcast, you could have an encounter with Jesus that will change your life. And now get ready for an inspiring message from our teachers. today. Well, before we kick into this new series, I've got to teach everyone a new word, okay? An important word. You ready? Yeah. Word learning time. That word is prefigure. Everybody say prefigure. Prefigure. Okay. Prefigure means to be an early indication or version of something, okay? An early indication, an early version. Kind of like a practice, but not exactly. So throughout the Bible, we see people who prefigure Jesus, that is, they are great examples that pointed forward to the perfect example that was coming. So like a signpost, Jesus was everything that they aspired to be. Are you with me so far? Yes. Okay. That means that every hero of the Bible, doing their best to be faithful and obedient to God, points forward to Jesus, the true hero. They prefigure him. They came before, but they point towards what was to come. They're living signposts of the new and better human that was to come. Which means that when you read about some of these characters in the Bible, and in your mind you're like, these are heroes, great women and men of faith. And then you read the story and are like, oh, they were messed up. That actually kind of makes sense. Because they are not Jesus. They are, in some ways, humanity's best efforts to get near that until the true image of God could come in human form. You with me? Yes, That's what it means to prefigure. Here's the second thing to know in this series the Bible is a complex book, and that is in part because it's not really a book, it's a library. So if you've ever opened the Bible, if you've been one of those poor souls that gone, I'm going to give this a go, I'm going to open it, and I'm going to start from the start and go through to the end. Oh, My my heart hurts for you if that's you. That's not a particularly helpful way to read the Bible. It's a logical way if you've never read it before because that's what you do with books. You open them up at the start, read towards the end. There are some people in the congregation going, really? Frankly, some of my former interns are going, really? That's what you do with books. Anyway, they know who they are. But it's a library more than a book. And what joins these books together is a single unifying story. Every part of the Bible from start to finish is a love story. It is telling of God's love for his people, beginning with Adam and Eve in the garden, continuing through the call of Abraham and his wife Sarah, becoming the nation of Israel, moving into the life of Jesus, and then the commissioning and sending out of the church in the book of Acts, and going on through to the end of days and the revelation that John has in the book of Revelation about what is to come. There is a single unifying story, and every part of that story is drenched in love. Every word in the Bible... Every story, every chapter designed for one purpose. To let humanity know that God made us, God loves us, and God has invited us to partner with him in the transformation of all creation. How good news is that? And at the center of this love story, the very linchpin on which human history turns, is Jesus. The most important human being who ever lived, it all rises and falls on him. So the golden thread... And the heart behind this series, golden, is Jesus, the golden thread that connects it all together, the one who was and is and is to come. That is, he is a thread through all eternity. He didn't just get born and we're like, oh, where did Jesus come from? No, no, Jesus is preeminent. He has always existed. He's preexistent and preeminent. And this, this story in Jesus, every book of the Bible is telling the same story, I want you to hear that. Overarching is telling the same story, the story of a God whose love was so powerful that death could not stop it and so personal that he came to earth to live it out himself among us. That is the overarching story of every book of the Bible. How good is that? And I hope that by looking into this series, we get an understanding not only of some of these books of the Bible and some of the great characters in Christian history and where Jesus is in their stories, but what Jesus is doing in your life right now because the Bible is a living word. It speaks to us today throughout human history, amen? And so what God has done throughout history is not to be left in history, but it's to speak to us today so that we can understand it and process it and live it out for the glory of God and the goodness of a world that desperately needs it, amen? Amen. amen. So welcome to Golden, our series designed to help you see how the golden thread of Jesus connects it all together. And this week we start off with Daniel. Now, have you ever watched a movie that you go, you sit down expecting to watch one kind of movie, and then it just goes in a completely different direction? Anybody? I I remember when I was in high school, and I was was talking to a a friend, a female friend at school, and I was saying, "I'm going to see the movie Deep Impact." She's like, "I'm I'm not going to see that stupid action movie." I was like, "Oh, it's probably going to be sick." And then I went and watched, and I was like, "This sucks." This is a soppy romantic love story. I hate every moment of it. And I went back and I said, you would love it. And so she went and she loved it. It was exactly the opposite of what I expected. But some movies are, are even the other way around from this. Like Edgar Wright, the director Edgar Wright, is the king of starting a movie one way then just taking a sharp turn. So Shaun of the Dead seems like a slacker comedy and then suddenly zombie apocalypse. Hot Fuzz seems like a buddy cop story and then it turns into like an all-out action thriller. Um, what's the other one? Oh, maybe my favorite, Scott Pilgrim versus the world. You're like, oh, it's like a coming of age movie. Not really. It's like this fantastical gaming romance. I don't even know how to describe it in a genre. Go Do yourself a favor and watch Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Now, <laughs> I've received that. Now, of course, it can be both, right? You can have more than one genre, but sometimes things start one way and then boom, go the other way. That's what happens in the book of Daniel. For six chapters in Daniel, you think, oh, this is great. I'm learning stuff about the history of Israel. And then boom, suddenly apocalypse, revelation, vision. It's crazy. The first part is a history. It describes these events surrounding the life of Daniel and some of his friends, Jewish captives in Babylon in around 600, 550 BC and around that range. Now, it's really important that you know that they're Jewish captives in Babylon because so much of the context of the book of Daniel is people in exile, people who are trapped in a foreign land trying to work out how do you worship God faithfully when the culture around you is hostile. Very important. It describes Daniel's training, his rise to political power, and the way that God worked miraculously through it all. That's the first half. The second half is dramatically different. It is a wild turn. The second half of the book of Daniel is filled with dreams and visions, many of which Daniel himself doesn't even understand. We get it in the scriptures, and we're like, oh, now we get an explanation. Only for Daniel to write, I did not understand what God was saying. i like, oh, okay. And it's the kind of writing we see in the Bible a few times. It's known as apocalyptic literature. Now, when I hear apocalyptic, I hear, oh, the world's ending. But actually what the word apocalyptic means is the uncovering of something that's hidden. So in these visions and in these dreams, there is deep meaning. And what Daniel brings us is what's the meaning within what is hidden. Because God is always doing something new. And so Daniel reveals secrets about God and in the future. Now, Now, the book isn't written in a straight line either. It's not the history. And then we get to the end of the history bits. And the next bit in the history is his visions. No, the visions are kind of interspersed in there. It's just they put them all in a different section for whatever reason. That's just how the author put it together. So we hear all the events. Then we go back to the start and hear the visions that are sort of slotted into the events, into the timeline. You with me? Well, good. Yeah, I heard about four people say yes. Read the book of Daniel. It's a pretty weird way to write a book, let's be honest. But what does this mean? It means that when we try and work out where the golden thread is in Daniel, we've got to look in two different sections that I would call the prophetic section and the personal section, okay? A prophetic part and a personal part. Let me start with the prophetic. When I say prophetic, I mean the not yet. Sometimes we use the language in Christianity about it being now and not yet now in the present and not yet in the future so the prophetic in a sense is the not yet that's these crazy visions i described chapters 7 to 12 each vision has to do with something that for daniel has not happened yet many of them most of them have already happened for us here today but for daniel they hadn't and one of these visions in particular is really significant because daniel appears to have a clear vision of god seated on his throne and he calls him the ancient of days if you've ever heard that phrase that's where it comes from daniel chapter 7 and so he sees the Ancient of Days on the throne, and he's in awe of him. And then later, he has all these visions about different beasts that represent different kings that will either rule or threaten Babylon. It's, it's hectic. It is hectic. That's the prophetic. It usually deals with what is, is to come. It's usually shrouded in a bit of mystery, so that we have to dig in and understand. Ask the question, God, what are you saying? There's a sense in the prophetic that God wants us to ask a question of him what are you saying it's shrouded in mystery so that like jesus said those who have ears to hear let them hear those who have eyes to see let them see i call that being future focused and the point of the prophetic section of daniel is to ask this question which kingdom will be the one that lasts now let's shift to the personal section the personal section is the now And this component is much, much easier to understand. In fact, if you grew up in the church, chances are about half of the stories in the book of Daniel, you know from Bible stories, Daniel and the lion's den and the fiery furnace and the Daniel fast and things like this. It's a much easier story to understand. He's a young Jewish man. He's been taken into exile in Babylon after the king of Babylon invaded Judah, where Daniel and his friends were living. And this is what the Babylonian king did. They made a, a considered plan to take the youngest nobles, that is, people who were wealthy and had been raised in an educated fashion but weren't too old to learn new things and took them to indoctrinate them in the ways of Babylon. They were young Jewish people. They were given privilege. They were given opportunity, but they were told to become Babylonian. In effect, they were being colonized. They were being fully colonized. You must be indoctrinated in the ways of Babylon. The best and brightest young leaders, imagine the best and brightest young leaders of an entire generation taken and indoctrinated in another culture. You might be able to imagine it because it's part of our history here in Australia too. But this was particularly insidious. And the point of the personal section, chapters one to six, is to answer the question, what does it look like to remain faithful to God in a culture where everything is pulling you away? Anyone ever asked that question before? It's a worthwhile question to ask. Daniel and his friends have lost their land. They're disconnected from their families, their tradition. They're being indoctrinated into a foreign and hostile culture while at the same time facing punishment for doing anything that would suggest they're worshipping the God of Israel. This is a hostile society, but there is something in this that speaks to the experience of following Jesus in the 21st century in Australia. There is something in this, and this is critical to grasp. There was something in Daniel and his friends that stood out. There's a reason this is in the Scriptures today. There's a reason that we're preaching on it, thinking through it, reading through it, processing it, because Daniel and his friends stood out from the crowd. There was a hunger for God, and there was a faithfulness to withstand and transcend cultural pressures. But the environment they were in did not define what God would do in them or who they would serve. Instead, they set themselves to one task. At the core of their being, Daniel and his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had one task, to become more godly. What we might call today becoming more like Jesus, following Jesus more closely. But really, the overarching idea is just called holiness. Ever heard of it? Holiness. Becoming more holy. This is a deeply unpopular idea, partly because it's hard. It's very out of fashion in the Western church. We don't like to talk about it. But partly is I think when we talk about the idea of us becoming holier, it sounds a bit arrogant. And we do not like arrogance or even an idea of arrogance in Australia. We can only be arrogant if we're pulling down other arrogant people. That's how Australians work. But there's a very big difference between being holy and being holier than thou. You you, you follow me? If you're familiar with that phrase, holier than thou, there's a judgment happening. Holier than thou says external comparison. I am judging others as less than us. So when you put yourself up on a platform and you sit everyone down... No, actually, that's a bad example. But when you, when you decide to put other people down and you're comparing them unfavorably, as in you are holier than they are, that's, that's being holier than thou. That's judgmental and it's arrogant. Holiness is entirely different. When we strive for holy lives, what we're really striving for is to be set apart for God. Not above, Apart. And apart can mean in the midst of a culture. For most of us living in Australia, this is what it looks like. To be a Christian in Australia means to strive for holiness, to be set apart while remaining within, to be in the world but not of the world, to use some other language. This is a hunger. This is the striving of holiness. So when we strive to live holy lives, it's not about external comparison. It's about internal conviction. And instead of judging others about how they measure up to us, we're judging ourselves in how we measure up to God. And that's a nerve-wracking thing to do. And it only goes one way, or it should only go one way. If you're going, actually, I think we're kind of peers, you're you're probably not worshipping the right God. So that, friends, is God's vision for your life. Holiness. Becoming more like God. And that's what happens to Daniel. And the very first chapter tells us of these young Jewish men. They're taken away into cultural captivity. They're indoctrinated in the way of the Babylonian culture. But they're determined to remain faithful to God. And we hear that Daniel determines that he would not defile himself with the king's food or wine. That's in the very first chapter. Now, we don't know why. It might be because the food had been sacrificed to idols. It might be because it included pork, which the Jews don't eat. Or it might simply be this. God had told him to. Now, I don't want you to underestimate this. This is is a key point. Sometimes God will tell you to do things for your personal holiness that aren't about sin, they're just about effectively what's sin for you, about what you need to put aside in order to pursue God more fully. That's often how holiness works. When I was 21, I uh, was already a follower of Jesus. I'd given my life to Jesus a couple of years earlier. And I was just sort of stumbling along, but I was just a baby in the faith. And I went along to an Easter camp. And I was just praying because I was a baby in the faith, but I had a heart just to go, God, I wanna, I wanna hear your voice. I want you to grow me. And I just sense God speak to me very, very powerfully, maybe the most powerfully He's ever spoken in my life to say, okay, where are you going from here? What's next? What's next? Where are you going? And so God put a fire in me to grow up into holiness, and that if you just hear that and go, "That's a good aim," okay, sure, but often an action needs to come with the aim. And so for me, what that looked like is God put a heart in me that I needed to go and repent to some people that God convicted me that I'd wronged. Now I got to tell you, like I wasn't going, like I wasn't doing like home invasions or something. Yeah, this is. I, these were just people who I'd had conversations with, and I'd felt I'd wronged. One was my own mother. They were just people that I felt like I'd disrespected or dishonored in some way. To be honest, like three out of the four people just said, "I, I had no idea you'd done anything, but thank you," you know, because it wasn't really for them. It was for me. It was for the consecration and sanctification of my spirit. To grow more like God, I had to lay down things that were getting in the way, any sort of barriers. Often that's the way. I've got another friend who had to lay down playing basketball. He was sort of going on the way to being a semi-professional basketball and he just sensed God say, no, this isn't it. This isn't it for you. And so he laid it down to pursue God more fully. I've had other friends who've done the same with alcohol or have done the same with social media. None of these things in and of themselves sinful, but they were in the way of the holiness path that God had set out for them you with me? Now, the scary nagging question that I'll get to later, but I'll just drop now, is what does that mean for you? Because God has a holiness path for everybody. And he's challenging each and every one of us to grow up into the image of Christ and become more like him. And that is going to require different sacrifices for each of us. What might it be for you? That was incredibly challenging. It grew me a lot. And I want you to hear, nobody told me to do it. This isn't like I had people around me going, if you don't uh, apologize to these three people. No, 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 no. Absolutely not. This is just something God put in me. But unless we are pursuing holiness and asking a key question of what God wants us to do, then all our best efforts are misguided at best and evil at worst. We We will go about trying to make the world a better place but in our own image and not in the image of God. And the only way to really do it in the image of God is to open his word, to be part of his family, to pray to him and say with an open heart, God, what you ask me to do, I will do. Where you tell me to go, I will go. If it's challenging, if it's provoking, I want to go there. I want you more than I want this. That's the great question. So the same was true of Daniel and his friends. They had a particular calling from God to withdraw from royal foods and to only stick to vegetables and water. And it made them stand out from the culture around them. However, i could tell you, only in like a little way. They were not making a huge deal about this. They were told they had to eat certain foods, and they went to the person in charge of the foods and said, listen, we really don't want to eat that. What if you just give us vegetables and water? And the chief eunuch said, absolutely not, because... I'm in trouble if you look bad. And they said, no, 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 test it for 10 days. And then if it's not good at the end, you, you feed us what you want, but 10 days. So they were giving God an opportunity to work, but they did it so gently, so winningly. They weren't, they weren't going in and throwing any punches, like making a big stand, like, I can't possibly eat that. None, none, nothing like that. They just did it in such a winning way. It was a quiet resistance against the culture of Babylon. Now, if it's a quiet resistance... Why is that so important? Let's go to today's teaching text. In the teaching text we heard earlier, an excerpt from Daniel chapter 3, we don't hear about Daniel himself, we hear about his friends, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, these, these three friends of his who were fellow administrators in the king's court who fasted and prayed with Daniel. And the king at the time, Nebuchadnezzar, what a name, think about that for future child names, Nebuchadnezzar, just call him Chad for short, I don't mean that. No, don't, don't call him chad had a series of dreams and prophecies where god was trying nebuchadnezzar had this series of dreams and prophecies god was trying to speak to him god was trying to teach him how to follow him and his ego kept getting in the way some of you may be able to relate i can relate in this case he set up a giant golden statue of himself can't relate to that one quite as much and he demands that people bow down and worship the statue now as you might imagine, this is a problem for God-fearing Jewish young men who are just wanting to be wholehearted for God, passionate for God. They come and they say, look, we, we, they, we've got a problem here. What do we do? Do we bow down before the statue knowing that in our hearts we worship God, so does it really matter? Or do we have to take to stand? Do we have to actually refuse knowing this is one of the Ten Commandments? That's something only they could work out, and I have no doubt that there were other God-fearing Jews that chose differently. But for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we hear, they said, no, this far and no further. I refuse. And they refuse because what we do with our bodies is an, an outflowing of what happens in our hearts. It matters. They refuse because some battles are worth fighting. And they refuse knowing that there is a cost. And the cost is to be thrown into a fiery furnace. And so they're dragged in front of the king who gets increasingly angrier with their disobedience and he threatens their lives with a furnace, but they stay calm and issue this iconic line. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it and he'll deliver us from your majesty's hand. I love that even in this, they're still saying your majesty, polite to authority. They sit under that, but they're going, but we can't, we can't go against the higher authority. Verse 18, but even if he does not, we want you to know, Your Majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Whether God does or does not save us, we will not worship the idols of your culture. They value obeying God more than obeying Nebuchadnezzar, and they have faith in God while also being totally realistic about their situation. Did you catch that? They're saying God is able to do this, but even if He doesn't, and we burn to a crisp, we'd rather do that. We're not going to worship a false god. There is one God. What devotion. He said, They say God can save us. We want him to save us, but even if he doesn't, we will praise him. We will not bow down to the false gods of our culture. We will draw the line here and no further. How about us today? Because church, listen, God is longing to build a generation of holy Christians. Yeah. Christians with the internal conviction that they must become more like Jesus in order for the world to be transformed into the image of God. Christians who know that who they are is not who they were, but God, by His grace, is helping them become something more. Christians who know that the world around them doesn't need them as they are, but as God is longing them to be. The world needs your conviction. The world needs your transformation. The world needs the work of the Holy Spirit in you, outworked in Jesus' name. This is what our planet needs. And these Christians... We call them resilient disciples here. They're here asking one simple, life-changing question. They ask it, and then they ask it again, and then they ask it again. Do you want to know what the question is? This is the question. What do you want me to do? Yes, okay, it's up on the side behind me. And that's the prophetic in action. No, no, no. Christians are asking, what do you want me to do, God? And then they say yes. As the old song used to say, send me, I will go. You just send me. I'll go. Where? To send. I'll work it out in the way. I'll buy the ticket when I get to the airport. See, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego church, you're going to be thrown in the fire at some point in your life. Maybe it's already happened. And possibly even for your faith, the more we go into a post-Christian context, the more the possibility is that your job could be threatened, your friendship challenged, relationships ended because of your faith, or maybe it is simple as a conflicting conversation, those simple little conversations we don't like to have when we feel like we're butting heads against someone else's worldview. At some point, you will be thrown into the fiery furnace. And the question is, what will you do when it happens? Let me tell you the timeline for Daniel. Because in Daniel 2, Daniel and the other advisors have their lives threatened by the king. In Daniel 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown in a furnace. Daniel 4 and 5, Daniel has to deliver dangerous messages to the king of Babylon. They could easily get him killed, and different kings too, so he can't just rely on the rapport. And in Daniel 6, he's thrown into a lion's den by another different king. Here's the thing, church. Without that first faithful decision as a young man to set himself to say, I am for the service of the Lord. I only want water and vegetables because this is what I feel God's calling me to, to consecrate myself, to sanctify myself so I can become more holy, so I can become more like Jesus. Without that first step, he never gets through the lion's den. They never get through the fiery furnace. They never get through all these trials and tribulations. They needed to prepare for the fire before they got there. Because friends, this is compound to your spirituality. Long obedience in the same direction. The small decisions you make now impacting the rest of your life. You won't know you can get through the fire until you're in the fire. You won't know. So you need to fireproof yourself first. And the only way to fireproof yourself against a culture increasingly resistant to Christianity and a world that even if it wasn't is still full of troubles it's to ask the question of God, Lord, what do you want me to do? Fireproof my spirit. And then ask God to speak to you, not your neighbour, not your spouse, not your friends, you. What do you want me to do? Church, this is the question I want burning in your hearts tonight. I'm going to finish talking in a minute, but God's not going to stop. God is speaking tonight. He is longing for you to hear his voice. And if you are available, if you are willing To say, God, what do you want me to do? Things can change powerfully. See, this is the now and the not yet of following Jesus. There is a life now to live. A life mostly of small decisions and small obediences, of stepping out in faith, of giving words of encouragement, of being generous with your finance, of uh, sharing your faith with a co-worker. These are small beginnings, but these are the only way to work towards God. Sometimes we think all we want are these mountaintop experiences, but between the mountains and the valleys... And we don't want those so much, even though we grow in them. And most of the rest of life is just out on the plane. Small decisions over time add up. That's what we're asking for here. And we must not despise the small beginnings. And we must not underestimate the impact and influence of your personal holiness on the world around you. So where do we see Jesus in the book of Daniel? Well, in Daniel's prophetic vision in chapter 7, he sees someone like a son of man... Coming with the clouds of heaven, he was given dominion and glory in a kingdom, it says, so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him, every tribe and tongue. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. See, this vision terrified Daniel. But this vision of an everlasting king who was like a son of man, similar but different. Jesus then takes this phrase and makes it one of the key phrases he uses to describe himself throughout the Gospels. In every Gospel, we hear Jesus say, the son of man, speaking about himself in the third person. See, Daniel saw a vision of the coming of Jesus, the true son of man, the truest servant of the true king and the truest Daniel, God made flesh. The king is coming to claim his kingdom and that is a powerful vision to see when you're under the oppression of a foreign government. That's the prophetic part, that's the not yet. Well, what about the now, the personal part? Let's go back to the teaching text. So Nebuchadnezzar has Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego thrown in the fire. It's so hot, it consumes the guards who throw them in. Verse 24 says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in alarm. He said to his advisors, Didn't we throw three men bound into the fire? Yes, of course, Your Majesty, they replied to the king. He exclaimed, Look, I see four men, not tied, walking around in the fire unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. The fire just burned the ropes of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, totally unharmed, and suddenly there's a fourth man with them a man like a son of the gods, a man like a son of man, and the king calls them out, but only three of them exit the fire. And in one of the more remarkable U-turns, Nebuchadnezzar sees what has happened to these men or what hasn't happened and changes his mind. He honors God for his deliverance of the three men and honors them for their faithfulness to God. This pagan king who so shortly earlier had been hostile to God has an encounter with Jesus and everything starts to change and the worship of Yahweh becomes Honoured for a time in Babylon. In modern day Iraq, the worship of Yahweh, the Hebrew God, was honoured above all else for a short time in history. And Nebuchadnezzar eventually up to, comes to a place where he honours God as holy above himself. The king bows down to the true king. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego are honoured with glory. They are honoured with authority. They're honoured with wealth. But that's not the important part. Here is the important part. Jesus was with them in the fire. It's the worst moment of their life where they resolved to stay faithful no matter what was going on around them and Jesus showed up powerfully and church, he will do the same for you. He will do the same for you. He is a savior. He's gonna be there. But if you want to grow in those moments, if you wanna be forged by them and not broken by them, the fire within you must be stronger than the fire around you. The fire that God is working in in you to change you must be stronger than the fire around you if you want to be refined and not consumed by the fires of the world the flesh and the devil and just the everyday travails of life you will need to devote yourself to holiness You will need to ask that question, not just once, but again and again. God, what do you want me to do? Friends, Jesus is going to turn up regardless. He's a saviour. That's what he does. He's with you in the fire. He's with you in your trials. He's with you in your joys. But are you with him? Are you turning up in the same way as Jesus is there trying to walk with you? Not always to get you out of your troubles, but through them. Are you with him? Have you done the work in your spirit? To allow God to bring you through the fire, not just unharmed, but stronger, more resilient. Are you asking God, what do you want me to do? Because friends, sometimes God puts us in the fire to put the fire of God in us. And there's a generation here. God is longing for each and every one of you to have a heart that hungers after him. Some days it's easier than others. But every day, to again, choose again, to say, God, what are you saying to me? What do you want me to do? If it's hard, I'll say yes. If it's send me, I'll go. If it's listen, I'll sit. If it's speak, I'll do it boldly. Friends, the question is not what he's saying to me. The question is, what is he saying to you? And the message of Daniel can be summed up in that single word, holiness. Holiness group of young men desperate to be true to god in a difficult culture mimicking prefiguring the one who was to come jesus and so today the question's thrown back on you why don't we take a moment of prayer why don't, why don't you stand up thanks so much for listening i pray that you were able to hear from god in a fresh way today we would love to hear from our listeners To connect with us or to financially support the work of Encounter, please jump on our website, encounteradelaide.com.au. And if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to jump onto iTunes, Spotify, or your podcast provider and give us a rating and review. Or share this message on your social media accounts and tag us at Encounter Adelaide. God bless. Have an amazing week.